Well, last week, <clears throat> we were in John chapter 7, and uh, we finally got to the root issue of the leaders of Israel uh, when it came to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and their rejecting of him. And we saw last week that, and usually when there's a problem with somebody, <clears throat> usually what they tell you is not really the issue. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit to find a root problem, and we've seen that with them. We've seen a lot of different things, but now we know, I showed you Mark fifteen ten last week and other places too, that the real issue they had was envy. Uh, the fact that they had no credibility as the scribes and Pharisees and all the leaders of Israel, and the fact that the people were following Christ in great numbers. We've already looked at the great story of the feeding of the 5,000, where in one place he had 5,000 people. People were flocking to him uh, because of, of who he was. And this is where, and we saw this when we go through the breakdown of the book of Matthew, this is where uh, we saw that he had proved who he really was by the sign and wonders that he did that Israel was told to look for all the way back in Exodus chapter 4. So when the common ordinary man saw that show up in him and nobody else could do it, scribes and the Pharisees sure couldn't, then they knew from the Old Testament scriptures that he was truly the Messiah. And the common man of that day, they knew exactly who he was because they knew what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, uh, just like today, our modern-day scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees will never figure out who he is, but the common man, people just like you and me, we understand it and we get to it, and uh, it's, uh, it's easy for us to grasp that because we want to believe the truth. You know, the scholars of his day, scribes, Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they totally rejected him on everything that he did. And we've seen this now as we've come through. And I've, I've taken the time because I wanted you to see the parallels. The fact that they, 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 they had no doctrine, they had no fruit, they had no power of God in their life, they had no authority. All they had was a lot of rhetoric, and they had no credibility. And now what they have done is they have driven a wedge uh, in the nation of Israel, and there's a great divide here. And, uh, you know, we see it. And, you know, and the truth of the matter is, and I don't know why people back then, I mean, there's a lot of people that believed on him, but it shows you the dishonesty of the people that went with the scribes and the Pharisees. Because when you look at it, they had to know that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were never part of a biblical system that God had ever incorporated into the nation of Israel. When you go back to the Old Testament, through all of those books with the kings of Israel and the establishment of the nation of Israel, there's no Sadducees or Pharisees back there. The Sadducees don't even begin to 167 years or so before Christ. The Pharisees, they start about 135 B.C. before Christ. And anybody who was paying attention, would, and this is important because I'm going to come back to this in a little bit. Anybody who was paying attention would see that the guys that were claiming to be the real deal hadn't even existed for 150, 160 years. That they were not part of God's original structure. 
but they were satanic tools that God, that the devil used to divide the nation of Israel. Then you remember I showed you that when you're dealing with heretics back there or modern-day heretics today, that the real issue with them will be the issues that we find with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that is that they, they, they desperately want a legitimacy. They want you and me to legitimize them, to give them credibility. And I told you last week that, that the way they want to do that is that they're always, always looking to debate somebody. And, of course, if you have the truth, you don't have to debate anybody. And the great verse on this is Romans chapter 1, verse 29 through 32. I don't know if you've ever seen it. But it talks about this crowd, and it says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, see, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to a parent, and it goes on and on and on. But the thing listed in here is these people always want to debate. They want to debate because... They have no history. They have no real biblical credibility like the scribes and the Pharisees. So they're always looking to get that credibility by somebody providing for them a crowd of people. Because they can never get a crowd of people to follow them anywhere. So if they get a debate going with somebody, now they've got an audience. A crowd of people will show up and they can spew out more of their garbage. So... You don't give them that debate. You don't give them that credibility. You deal with them one-on-one with the main issue that I gave you last week, that they they have no legitimacy. They have no credibility at all. They were nowhere in history, just like the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees were nowhere in Israel's history. Now, before we get into chapter 8, and I know we kind of finished chapter 7 last week, I want to stop and put all that we have seen so far into a proper context. You know, uh, so far I've given you a ton of information. And Thursday night we had a great Bible question from a guy uh, that wanted to know about the King James Bible and we kind of went through all of that. And I told you then that I was going to dovetail that into where we're at today and uh, tie it all together. Uh, And I give you a lot of information in the last couple of months, but facts, information without any real context for you to understand it or to put it in, is as worthless as the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, you got to have, when you get a bulk of information that's true, you need to be able to assemble it into some kind of understanding format. And the only thing that will do, and a lot of guys just, they, they take the pride on the fact that they can just dump out information after information after information. And you have to sort it out for yourself. That's not good teaching. Good teaching is going along and giving you a a barrel full of information and then stopping like today and helping you assess it all. So you go out of here today with a little better understanding of why things are the way they are and really the greatest thing, how that where you go in history, some things never change. And I think that's the most important thing understanding why things are the way they are. Now, from a personal note, that's always been my driving force in learning. I I was never satisfied with the status quo. 
I never took for granted that somebody, what somebody told me was the truth. Now, I may have believed that they were giving me the truth, but I also understood that it was my responsibility to understand that truth. Because there's a lot of Christians out there that they'll just take what somebody says. Some of it is true and some of it is not. But if you don't take it upon yourself to validate it for yourself, then you become vulnerable. And, you know, I just never was going to do that. I just never could. I've always looked deeper. I've always asked questions why uh, and how does this really work? And how does it all fit together with what God is doing? Those are the things, no matter what it was, those are the things that I looked at. And uh, I knew that, you know, I needed to have a, a historical perspective, but I also needed to have a biblical perspective. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can't separate the two. And it has served me well in understanding what it's all about today. Because I also learned this, history by itself can be very deceiving. And, and, and most people, you know, uh, history books, and I've read, I've read them all, history books have never been my authority on history. History books, from my mindset, was always the information about history But I learned a great truth early on when reading all the books on history. And for me, history books were only the filler material that really either went along or didn't go along with what God was doing through the Word of God. And I think too many people make the mistake that they value the writers of history and they actually think that if a guy wrote a book on history, that's probably really the way that it went down. And that's not necessarily true. And I'll tell you why. Somebody said one time, very wise guy, very wise man, the people who are the winners in history are the ones who write history. And because they won in history, they always write history from the winner's perspective. And that's a truth. Now, you may want to know who that great wise man was who says that. It was me. But anyway, (laughs) I learned that. I learned that when, you know, yesterday, obviously, we went down through the concentration camp uh, display down there of of Auschwitz, and it was very, very moving. It was very good and very informative. And if it didn't affect you in a, a way that made you appreciate what you have, uh, there's something wrong with you. I mean, it was a moving thing. But I take that as an example. We won World War II. So we get to choose who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Now, I'm certainly not telling you that the Nazis were the good guys. But we make the concentration camp the focal point of a presentation focusing on the evilness of the Nazis and absolutely true. But nobody said a word in there about the Russians. You know, the Russians murdered more people than the Nazis ever thought about on their best day. You know, they had their own concentration camps. The Nazis, when they had their concentration camps, it was during the war. You know when the Russians put their concentration camps into play? After the war. And I'll tell you what, they murdered and starved to death and killed more people than the Germans ever thought about. But you don't read anything about that in history. You know why? Here it comes. Because in World War II, they were allies, see? 
we needed them. And so we, you, you got to look at history and understand that you, there's more to history than what you read in the books. And of course, the book is the way that you put history together. The importance of Bible and history going together. Most people, you know, they come at it completely backward. They actually think that the Bible is a book about man. And God recorded the doings of man and where he's going and what he's doing. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The Bible is a complete record and picture of what God is doing for 6,000 years. And it gives you the insight of how man either fits in or doesn't fit in with what God is doing. And, of course, you know this from the book of Daniel, especially in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, where he gives the great prophecies on the Gentile nations, which we find America, the good U.S. of A, there in, uh, in the Daniel chapter 7. His recording in prophecy how history is going to go long before it ever played itself out. <clears throat> Having said that, to understand the idea <clears throat> of John chapter 7 <clears throat> with the non-biblical system of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees rejecting Christ and trying to drive a wedge with God's people. I want to see and show you today how that some things never change and how the devil has used what we have today as biblical scholarship as a mainline tool to do the same thing that they're doing in John chapter 7. Now, I know by saying this, some people are pulling their hair out and going crazy. But you know what? Bald heads are in. We need to have a context today. We need to see the lessons of history that things really never change. Book of Ecclesiastes tells you that. It tells us that somebody says, oh, this is new. And he said, no, no, that's been around a long time. There's no new thing under the sun. So everything you're seeing that we're going through today went through a cycle. <clears throat> and when you learn the cycle from the book, then you're not surprised by it. And also you have a better appreciation and a better context of history. Now we need to see today, based on what's going on in John 7, before we get into John 8, we need to put it into a perspective. We need to see where this starts. We need to see how it came to power and how that it all includes everything today, what we call Christianity, learning the lessons of history from John chapter 7 up through to today. <clears throat> now, to do that, we must first quickly get a proper perspective and a context by a quick look at the 20th century. I told you a couple of weeks ago <clears throat> that the 20th century was probably the keyest century in the history of the world uh, in respect to what God is doing and how God is winding up what he's doing within the 20th century. There's more keys when you step back and get your Bible and you look at it. There's more information that shows you the context of why we are where we're at today than any other thing I could ever give you. Probably the most greatest single century in the history of man, completely missed by everybody. Now, I say all of this that's going on all the way back to the 20th century is all part of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 12, which we've talked about many times, the mystery of iniquity. In Paul's day, it was already at work. 
And I would say from the 20th century on, it shifted into uh, from a 40-hour week to an 80-hour week with overtime. And uh, this is where we're at today. And uh, in this century, depending on how you want to count them, <coughs> there's probably 10 or 11 events that, uh, you know, is really um, comes to the fulfillment of the greatest biblical fulfillment of prophecy outside of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will be the regathering of the nation of Israel. When they went into captivity in 606 B.C., for 2,500 years, they were a nation without a country. They were booted around the world, persecuted around the world, kicked around the world. You saw the end result of it in the 20th century uh, yesterday down at Union Station. But everything in the 20th century, we were told in Romans chapter 11 in numerous places in the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah that God was going to bring them back. That prophecy stood idle for almost 2,600 years. And then it got fulfilled in the 20th century. And everybody, most people didn't even see it. They missed it, didn't even understand it. But it goes back beyond that. It starts at the beginning of our 20th century, really back around 1880, but we got into full force in the 1900s, well, what became known as the Zionist movement, a, re, a rebirth of an awareness of the nation of Israel did not have a homeland. And then, of course, in 1916, the Archduke Ferdinand was, of, of uh, Austria was, was assassinated, and uh, that threw us into World War I. And World War I lasted from 1916 to 1918. Now, what that did, if you're paying attention... It not only broke up the Muslim um, Ottoman Empire, who was in Jerusalem and had control of it, it also busted all the other European empires and only left one standing, which was England. And at the end of 1918, here it comes, Zionist movement, 1880, uh, 1900, now uh, in the, in the uh, end of World War I, England now has control of Jerusalem. And that moves us into the next great thing that happened about 1918 up to 1930, which was the Belfar Declaration. Lord Belfar was in British Parliament, and he recognized, and he was a Bible believer, by the way, and he recognized that Israel needed to have a land. So he put forth back a declaration in Parliament called the Belfar, after his name, <coughs> that said, we need to give the land back to the Jews and based the Bible on Amos chapter 9. And so they took up that declaration and were moving forward with that, and then it got shut down. And we don't have time to get into all that, but they reneged on it, so to speak. And then that, that'll bring us up to about 1930, and 1930 on, we know World War II from 1935 to really 33 uh, up to, uh, you know, 1945. We see that the... Uh, the Germans now, and the, uh, uh, under, the, uh, under the slogan of the Nazis, and, uh, you know, they now try to take over the world, and, of course, they got defeated. And the reason why the Germans lost World War II is because they tied their shoes in little Nazis. <laughs> and couldn't escape, and we caught them. 
Put that in your Bible. It'll be good sometime when you're teaching somebody. At the end of World War II, now we see it all moving in a direction because in 1948, that great prophecy gets fulfilled. And this was the prophecy of Matthew chapter 24, uh, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11, Ezekiel from 40, 48, and everything that in between, where now that God has brought his people and regathered them back to the land. In fact, you can go back to the Old Testament and you can find, you can find the ovens in Auschwitz of the Jews being burned in ovens. You can find them back there in the prophets where their people are going to be burned. I mean, it's all right there if you're paying attention. That moved us into the 50s uh, and into the 60s with both Korea and Vietnam. And then that we see the rise of the communism world, the domination start of the Cold War, uh, you know, and um, we, uh, we see that uh, both Korea and Vietnam uh, and then go communist. They were, uh, they were taken over by the Japanese. Uh, Vietnam was run by the French before World War II. And when World War II came, the French left and the Japanese occupied it as Korea. And then after the war, the French wanted to come back in and the Vietnamese said, no way. And then that's how it started. They went communist and that's where the Vietnam War got going from. So that's how. And during that time, or the next sect, would be the rise of the Muslim nations. And this is all key around 1948. And we're moving toward now, in 20th century, we're moving toward the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ and the establishment of Christ's kingdom in the millennium. We saw, uh, after the rise of the Muslims, the wars in the Middle East, the ones in 1990, the Gulf War, and then, of course, uh, Afghanistan. And we've lo- we lost both of those wars, and, uh, as we did Vietnam, as we did Korea. And uh, we have not won a war since 1945 when we defeated Japanese and then defeated the, uh, the Germans. And now we see today before our very eyes, we see the judgment of God on America. And there's no question about that. We've seen America reject the word of God just like Israel did at the first coming of Christ. And we see its fall from God's grace and what will lead us in time to utter destruction. Now, where we go out in this in the rapture of the church is still to be determined. But things are not going to get any better. If you understand the 20th century, you know where this has got ahead. And you can see now through a protracted events where we're at. As I said, we haven't won a war since 1945. There's a reason for that. We see attacks on American and American troops all around the world. There's a reason for that. We see violence in our cities to un- unbelievable. I mean, just completely, uh, and nobody's going to stop it. We see the, the mess at the southern border, and nobody's going to stop it. I mean, you can see this country and how screwed up it is when the news media and the liberals see a guy on a border patrol, and uh, don't get me started on this. I'm sorry you asked this question. <laughs> they got guys on horseback down there, and the guy is leading his horse with his rein. He hadn't whipped anybody, and boy, that's all the liberals had to see. One lady from California who I don't even remember her name, and thank God I don't. But anyway, uh, she, she got on the news and she says that. Uh, and now, keep in mind, nobody got whipped. There was a, one picture. He just was smacked his horse to get him to turn left or right. But that's all this world, that's all this crowd needs. And she gets on there and says that one image was worth that all 
the slavery down through the history of America. Now, I've got to tell you something. Lady, if you're that stupid, and you're not, you know what your problem is? You've got an agenda. Okay? They all got an agenda. And it's a thing where uh, they'll get up there, and that's a terrible thing. Listen, nobody whipped anybody. Nobody hit anybody. Kansas City Police Department have their horses. Now, the Border Patrol can't use horses anymore. No more horses down, around, down on the border. But you see, it's all right to put all those kids and all those deportees in rooms where they're sleeping on top of each other. It's all right to put them in places where they're not sanitary. It's okay for them to live under a bridge in 100-degree weather. You see, that's okay. But a guy on a horseback, with, with, see, this is the world we live in today. And I'm telling you right now, it is not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. And it's a situation where somebody asked Mel Sabaka one time, my father in the Lord, they asked him if he was enduring his salvation or enjoying his salvation. He gave one of the classic answers, as he always did. And he said, thought about it for a second, and he said, you know what? I'm enjoying my enduring. Amen. Amen. So I give you a piece of advice this morning. Learn to enjoy your enduring. So let's, let's put a real Bible-based context into the day and age that we live in. And let's look for a moment, before we move into eight, let's get all this information together to show you how history repeats itself. From the first coming of Christ, John chapter 7, to the second coming of Christ of where we're at. And I want to show you this into the detail that I looked into it for myself. You don't want to get fooled by the smoke screens that are out there. Now, at the start of the 20th century, which, by the way, if you know your church history, was the end of the greatest period in church history we know as the Philadelphian church age, and now began to enter into the worst period of church history was the Laodicean church period, which means rights or justices of the people. And we see that with all that God is doing to move forward to establish the nation of Israel, the devil is moving in opposition to that. And the idea of modern-day scholarship, which would be likened to our scribes, Pharisees, and, hip, and, uh, and Sadducees back in the first coming of Christ, will have their beginning in just three areas right around 1900, if you can believe that. Now, the first one is what we commonly call today, has been coined by this phrase, neo-evangelicalism. And the word evangelical means Bible-based Christianity. But I want you to draw your attention to the name that we have today. It is neo-evangelicalism. Neo means new. So now in 1900, we got a new Bible-based Christianity, even though there was nothing wrong with the old one. Now, the neo-evangelical movement, which started around this time, was basically a movement of reconstruction of theology. Neo, new. It was a shift from hardline Bible preaching and doctrine to the churches now accepting that the number one doctrine for Christianity was getting people saved. 
the Bible didn't matter anymore. The great doctrine didn't matter. Amillennialism didn't matter. Postmillennialism didn't matter. None of the great doctrines of the Bible that it's built on mattered. All that mattered was you got people saved. And that moved into this area. Get everybody together. You know, no Bible doctrine. Salvation being the only issue. And this is why you'll find that they wanted to get everybody together and no differences. And see, this is what doctrine does. Doctrine divides. So if you get rid of the doctrine, you can't have everybody together if you have doctrine. So if you want to get everybody together, guess what's got to go? Doctrine. And it was a movement to take the Word of God out of the hand of the common man and put it into the hand of biblical scholarship. To take from you the Bible you have and tell you that you're a dumb redneck hillbilly from Raytown if you think you really can understand the Bible without these guys helping you. And of course, we see now the beginning of the rise of biblical education. This is where we now begin to see the great Bible colleges, the great Bible schools, the seminaries, the universities. Every one of them, no matter where they're at in the country, have one goal, and that is to take the Bible from you. And the greatest example of this is Billy Graham. Now, I'm not against Billy Graham. I I, 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 I think he's an interesting study in history. He started out as a Baptist, and he wound up as a neo-evangelical. He started out, and you can still go online, and you can find him back in the 50s and the 60s where he's preaching. He's preaching the hell out of it, brother. I heard a message he preached a while back on the handwriting on the wall for America. He preached everything we're going through right now in 1952. And he wasn't so prim and proper back then. He was sweating like a stuck pig. His hair was all over the place. He was frothing at the mouth, and he was going up and down, and he was ripping them up. And then someplace along the line, the neo-evangelical crowd, the big money bags, got a hold of him and said, Look, Billy, you have a great ministry. We've got all these guys who are willing to put millions of dollars into your ministry that you'll be able to preach everywhere as much as you want. Now, we are going to help you in your ministry, but you know what, Billy? You need to tone it down a little bit. People are going to be turned off while you're yelling and screaming and going up and down here. And so, and so he made a gradual progression from a, a hellfire and damnation preacher that believed in a literal hell that before he died... He didn't believe in hell anymore. He thought the Muslims were going to go there. He thought John Paul, uh, Pope John Paul was one of the greatest Christians of the 20th century. This is what they do. And he's a great example of what happened all through Christianity. Now this is why, just so you know, many of the old traditional Baptist churches that stood for 100 years are now all taking Baptist off their name because they don't want to be associated with a doctrine that divides. And they are told and they believe that people won't come to your church if you're a Baptist because of the fact that you're, you're too hard line. And that, uh, you know, and so they take that non-denominational approach. They take that approach where they... You know, it's a trans-denominational movement. 
They pretend they don't have any denominations, even though when they become a neo-evangelical, they just stamp that denomination on their forehead. But in their mind, they don't have one. These churches are called, you know, free evangelical. They're called cornerstone. They're called community churches. They're called chapels. Uh, they're called uh, lighthouse church. Uh, they're called, uh, you know, uh, outreach centers. They're called, uh, you know, um, uh, Graceway, Abundant Life, uh, any, any name of a church without any denomination. And that's where they, they, they think they're safe there because if they associated with Baptists, then they're going to be associated with a certain kind of people that turns people off. You know, Jesus turned a lot of people off. I can't think of one time in his preaching where he ever cut it out of line or didn't say something because he was worried about what somebody would thought. You know, now I can't speak for every Baptist church, but I can speak for this one. I'm going to give you the truth. And if you don't like it, I don't care. No, I want you to get saved. I want you to come to church, and we'll help you any way I can. But if truth is your issue, you're going to have a problem here. You're going to have a problem because I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to get up here and tell you everybody is nice here because you're not all nice. In fact, if I would count the nice people this morning, I probably could count it on the hand of a guy who lost three fingers in an industrial accident. We're all sinners. And I don't do you any favor of telling you how wonderful you are and not preaching the hell out of you. Now, if that word bothers you, I can say it a few more times so you get used to it. Neo-evangelicalism has taken over Christianity in America because nobody wants the truth anymore. And it was their beginning that started to take the Bible from you, the common man, and put it back into scholarship. And they did that by erasing all doctrinal truth that we all can get along. And salvation of souls is the number one thing that is we're all concerned about. And that way they got rid of everything. That's why, that's why back in 1994, the neo-evangelicals and the Catholic Church got together with the Catholic Evangelical Accord. And here's two groups that you would think would never get together, now are getting together because they want to work together to reach the lost in the next millennium. Now, let me ask you a question. I could ask this to, to kids in our junior high class. How do you think that's going to work with those two groups? It will work when you take away doctrine because now we don't have any real issues all we do is want to win people to Christ. And, uh, you know, I'm all for winning people to Christ. I think, uh, I think soul winning is, is, is absolutely important, but not at the expense of God's truth. Amen. If I lay out the sad salvation and the truth to you and you decide not to get saved, I'm not going to change my stand so you will get saved. Jesus never did. And, uh, he, you know, what his thing was, the blind lead the blind, and they both fall in the ditch. That's what it is. So, you know, it's a thing. Now, the second thing happens around the same time is the neo-Orthodox movement. Now, orthodoxy means what is the standard of what we believe. We're orthodox. When you talk about an Orthodox Jew, that you're talking about Jews who are buried deep in New York City someplace that still wear the pigtails down in their hair and the beards and all that stuff, or over there. Not the ones over in Overland Park. They're not real Jews. I mean, they may be born Jewish. But there's a real difference from Jerusalem Jews and Overland Park Jews. 
And I don't have time to get into that, but uh, take my word for it. Anyway, so the neo, this is a neo-orthodox, this is a new orthodoxy, see? And this is a movement of social reconstruction. It starts around 1900, and it's a movement to change the Bible, the church, and Christianity to make it go along with the social adjustments as society changes. Their issue is not doctrine, it's race. Their issue isn't fundamental truth, it's human rights. Their issue isn't, isn't the Bible, it's social issues. They preach a social gospel that if you want to go to heaven, follow the Sermon on the Mount, do good to your fellow mans and do unto others before they do it to you. Oh, that's the Baptist code. There's a do unto others and you'd have them do it to you. And of course, they accept women pastors. They accept deacons, women deacons. They have homosexual pastors and lesbian preach, uh, women that are their pastors. Uh, it's all a, you know, it's all, there's no more sin. Everything is a disease now. If you're, if you're a, you know, if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict, it's not your fault. You're, it's a disease. It's a sickness. You probably had it in your DNA and your genes from your mother or your father, so it's really not your fault. I'm going to tell you something. When sin ceases to be your fault, you ain't ever going to get over it. You know why? Because we all like to sin. And how easy is that if I can blame my sin on the fact that it's not really sin, it's a disease, and I'm a helpless victim? Did you hear me another joint? I mean, that's what it is, you see. That's what they do. There's one church here in Kansas City, right up here in Lee Summit. It's a big church. I could tell you the name, but I wouldn't want to embarrass them. Uh, but it's a church. It's a big church. In fact, it's, a, it's not even a neo-Orthodox, but it's following their line of reason. It's a neo-evangelical church. And their stand is that they have a homosexual guy on, on staff there who's a confirmed homosexual. And their position is that you can be a homosexual and be a pastor as long as you're not a practicing homosexual. In other words, you can think about men, you just can't be with them. And, you know, and I, I look at the, here again, I got to go deep. I look deep. So I ask myself, where's the hypocrisy in that? So if a guy's a pedophile, he can be in the ministry as long as he's not practicing pedophilia. Where do you end that? You see, and this is the problem. This is where we have it. And when you get rid of your Bible, these things come in. You know why kids in school are in a mess they're in? You know why kids in school are in a travesty they're in? I'll tell you why. When they took the Bible out of the schools, all that other stuff came in. When I was in grade school, we didn't start class every morning before somebody read the Bible and prayed over the PA system. Now, that person may not have been saved. Uh, it doesn't matter. There's, a, there's an acknowledgement that there's a standard of right and wrong. We don't have that today. You're okay, I'm okay. Situation ethics, if it feels good, good do it, see? And that's the, that's the mindset. And that will be today, just so you know, that'll be your Methodist churches, your, your uh, Episcopalian churches, your Catholic church, your Lutheran church, your Presbyterian church, the Unity church, and all that. And they, they, they follow that line of reasoning that the church needs to change along with the changing society. So wherever it goes, the church is going to accept that 
And that's what Christianity really is, of course. Now, the third one was what would be the charismatic movement. That again starts about 1900, and it starts with a woman, Amy McPherson Simpson. And then it later moved to the Bethel Bible College out in uh, Topeka, Kansas. And, of course, they, they, they take the stand that the sign gifts given to Israel are given to the church. And these three absolutely destroy uh, any, 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 any realm of any kind of doctrine for the church. Charismatic church has absolutely no doctrine. The four characteristics that I've found over the years, a total disregard for the authority of the Word of God, a complete lack of church history, um, no charismatic ever was a serious Bible student. And their two main goals that they exist for, the devil uses them, is to confuse young people, young Christians, and, of course, keep them from growing. Now, there's all kinds of flavors of these churches by names. You find these as the Pentecostals because they base it out of Acts chapter 2 there with the day of Pentecost. You find them charismatic, and the word charismatic means gifted one. So they believe that because they have the shine gifts, they again have exalted themselves over you. They're called the Church of God in some places. They're called the Church of Christ. They're called Free Will Baptist. They're called Hardshell Baptist. They're called Foursquare Baptist. They're, they're all charismatic in their mindset. And uh, Church of the Four Corners is another one. I think there's one right down the road. My grandma used to say, and she was wise, she said, you ought to go to the Church of the Round Table. And I said, why is that, Grandma? She says, because the devil can't corner you there. There's a lot of insight, my old grandmother. She's a terrible cook, though. I think I told you the story about that. I won't bring that up again. But anyway. Now, in all of this, from John chapter 7 to where we're at today, the first coming to the second coming, the great plan of the devil, through everything that he's doing, and this is a context, was to get rid of the Bible today just as they wanted to get rid of Christ in John chapter 7. In John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, where Jesus Christ was the visible appearance of the Word of God that they wanted to get rid of. He went back to heaven. Now you have the Word of God, which was manifested through him, and they want to get rid of that. Taking the common Bible out of the hand of the common man and putting it back into scholarship. Now, the truth is, there's only one institute that is set up by God, ordained by God, or however you want to say it, that is, is fit to teach the Bible from God's, what God's program, and that will be a New Testament local church. Now, I know everybody screams at that, but that's okay. That's okay. Your screaming is about to intensify as soon as you die and you go to hell, but that's okay. And that will be the New Testament local church. Now, that's defined for you in the book of Ephesians, but we're way past the Bible now at this point. Who cares? So, I mean, when it comes to these guys. Bible colleges, universities, stay with me here. Places of higher biblical learning are not, or were they ever, of the plan of God. And, of course, it all comes out of the counter-reformation with the Catholic Church when they start their great institutes of learning, and then it carries into the churches in England and then, of course, the Church of England. And, uh, you know, and that's where it all begins, it gets its start. God's system has never been any of those things. God's system has always been for you to learn everything about your Bible, the New Testament local church. But when they take the Bible out of the church and they put pastors in who don't believe that, then he ships you off to a Bible college and the devil does his work. I'm going to show you that in just a second. 
Now, uh, you know, higher Bible education, has, it's got a cult-like mindset. They accuse us of being a cult. <laughs> I got news for you, buddy. You, you define the word. We go back in church history to second, third century. Uh, you find that the rise of a group of people called the Gnostics. It's called Gnosticism in its final form. And the Gnostics were men who actually thought and told people that they had a greater knowledge of of the Word of God than the common man. And if the common man wanted to learn the Bible, they had to come to the Gnostics. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 15, uh, this is called the Doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Two words there. Doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Nico uh, is to conquer. Laity is the common man. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was a priest class that set themselves up over you to make you come to them because they were of the Gnostic mindset that they had the Bible that you could never get on your own because you're too stupid. It's men putting themselves over the common man when it comes to the Bible. Now, here's how it works in a practical way, and I've seen this for 50 years. If a young man wants to learn his Bible today, all the way back to when I first got saved, I mean, back in the, in the 70s, you have to, you know, you, you have to come to them, the higher education, and they will give you the secrets of the Greek and the Hebrew to unlock the Bible. And, of course, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the secret organization, like that other demon-possessed group, the Masons. You know, you get to be a 32nd degree mason. It's all cloaked in mystery and they have all their secrets. Well, that's what the Bible colleges all do. Now, in time, as you spend a lot of time there and a lot of money, you can get on any level you want. You can get an associate's degree in Bible. You can get a BA in the Bible. You can get a doctor. You can get a PhD. Or you can get a doctor of a divinity, which is in the Bible realm is the highest thing you can get. And, you know, now your God becomes education. Because now you've entered an institution that takes the Bible from you, and every one of these guys is the same. Because now they come out of their Bible college, and they are more loyal to their Bible colleges than they are their Bible. Because if you're in this world, they all judge how spiritual you are by where you went to school. Somebody said, well, I went to Bob Jones University. Somebody else said, well, I went to Tennessee Temple. Somebody said, well, I went to Springfield. Somebody else said, well, I went to Northeast by Northwest. Somebody said, I went to Cedarville. Everybody judges your spirituality on the academic level that they think that school is. It has nothing to do with your Bible anymore. Hey, and when churches look for a pastor, and they'll you know, candidate a guy and bring him in and ask him questions, you know the first thing they ask him, where'd you go to school? They don't care how many people he's won to Christ. They don't care what he's going to do in the church. They don't care. Uh, they, they, they just want to, they want to know where he went to school because to them, education means everything. And of course, education means nothing. Education without salvation is damnation, by the way. And so it's a thing they go there. So they go to school, and they're more loyal to the school. Now, I told you that all these Bible colleges, going way back in time, go back to the Catholic Church and the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. So that's why wherever, and I hear these guys talk about that. They'll say, Where was your, where's your alma mater? Alma mater, where's your alma mater? That means what school did you go to? And they use that term like they got good sense. And it says, where's your alma mater? Alma mater, you know what that means? Alma mater, alma means virgin, and mater means mother. Where is your virgin mother? 
all goes back. All roads lead to Rome. It's nothing more than 20, 21st century Gnosticism. And churches today, pastors today, have fallen into this. And of course, uh, uh, you know, giving up their birthright for a mess of pottage that they had the, they were given the, the, the they were given the mission by God to teach the Bible. Pastors being turning out then generation after generation with no loyalty to the Word of God, uh, but to their education. So a young man or a young lady leaves their church, gets shipped off to a Bible college, and you know, where you get your faith destroyed in the Word of God, and then you're now uh, a, a full-blown member of what <coughs> Dr. Ruckman used to call the Alexandrian cult. Oh, yeah, and I forgot to tell you this. Back in my day, and it's true today, when a church had its favorite Bible colleges, and it was all, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You send all your kids down to Bible college, and uh, they get money off of them, and you, you have a, a pipeline of your kids coming into your, in there every year, 10 or 12 kids. After four or five years, you know what they do? They call that pastor down, and they want to recognize the great work he's done, and they'll give him an honorary doctor's degree. Nothing that he earned. It's a kickback is what it is. You send all these people down to me, we're going to reward you now and give you an honorary doctor's degree. And so now he gets all puffed up, goes down for graduation, puts on one of those big old Catholic robes and gets up there and preaches to the graduating class and they give him his honorary doctor and uh, here it goes. And that's just the way it works. And it's a, it's, a, it's a failed system. Now, when you go off to these Bible colleges, as a young man or a young lady, these bastions of truth, you'll learn the trade language. Because now you're going to be part of an exclusive club. You're going to learn a new system of terms and words, neo. You know, you're going to now come to the place where you're going to become an elitist. You know, in the world we live in, all doctors, lawyers, dentists, veterinarians, all professional people have developed their own trade language. Uh, it's not, it, so you can't ever get to be what they are without going through what they went through. Try to read your doctor's prescription sometime. You can't. Pharmacists can. You can't. I mean, it's, it's just that simple. You go to the dentist, and he looks inside your mouth, and he says, well, you're bicuspids and your molars and your incisors. You see, if he just said the big teeth on the bottom and the little ones in between, he couldn't charge you $200. So they got to talk like you can't understand them. That makes you dependent on them. You ever been in a foreign country where you didn't speak the language and everybody's talking and you know they're talking about you? You feel, and so when you go into these guys, you go to a lawyer and he says, well, I've just got a rid of hideous corpus. You thought they found a dead body in your house. They talk in a language that the common man can't understand. I mean, it's even true in the animal kingdom. You know, you know in, our, in Raytown, we got more coyotes than did you ever could shake a stick at. They're walking down the street in pairs. And uh, somebody, uh, if I were, I got some neighbors out there. A neighbor the other day said, uh, man, you know, well, actually one took a little puppy out of somebody's yard and ate it. Oh, I know, it's terrible. It's kind of like Auschwitz. It was a terrible deal. And so they're talking about it, and, and we're talking about coyotes. Now, they know I'm a pastor. 
and they know that, you know, and I don't ever try to be ever smarter than them because I'm probably not. But how would it have went out there if I'd have said they were talking about coyotes and I would have said, yes, those canis litraninists are really a trouble. See, that's a professional name for coyote. Cani latrinius. Now, why can't you just say coyote? Because you can't make a living as a professional using the word coyote. You guys like to fish, use worms? You don't use worms anymore. Now they're lumbricnia. That's an earthworm. Walk into your bait store and say, I want a box of lumbricniums. It's worms, man. Your dog, you love your dog, that's a canine. You got a cat, that's a feline. <clears throat> they don't call them those names. You see, so you, you, you got to get with the scholars to learn the trade talk to be one of them. All, you know, all, all desire to keep you in the dark until they enlighten you and you got to go to them. And you pay for it. You can't talk in a common man, common language and be professional. You got to get the trade language. And that's the real bottom line here. And if you don't do that, then you're like, as I said, the redneck unlearned men from Raytown, Missouri, which you find in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, that the learned guys couldn't understand why these guys could have power with God and they couldn't. Now, here's the issue context. When you go to a Bible college, you learn, as I said, a system of terms the, tra- the, the trade talk the union dialogue. You can't talk plain anymore and be respectable as a scholar. Now, on Thursday night, somebody would say, I have a question about angels in the Bible, which happens from time to time. If I would get up and say, yes, uh, I will answer your question on angelology. See? Sam says, says, I'd like to study man's fallen nature. Yes, we can study that. That would be a study, take your Bibles, and I'm going to teach you about anthropology. See? Some of you guys got saved over the last couple of weeks. How would it work for you when you said, I really want to get saved, and the guy that won you to Christ and said, well, I'm glad because sodiontology is for everybody. That's salvation. Anthropology is the study of man. Angelology is the study of angels. We talk about the church. That's eschatology. We talk about the Jesus Christ. That's Christology. We talk about the Holy Spirit of God. That's pneumonology. We talk about the defense of the Bible. That's apologetics. John Wayne said you never apologize to anybody. We talk about teaching the Bible. That's hermeneutics. In most cases, hemorrhoid nudics, but it's the same. We talk about laying out the Bibles and doctrines. That's exegesis, you see. We talk about the practical application of the Bible. That's hortatory. Now, you see that? You leave your church, and you pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for school, and all you do is learn to talk like nobody in the Bible ever talked. Amen. Did Jesus ever talk like that? No, Did Paul ever talk like that? No, Did Timothy ever talk like that? No, Did Titus or Philemon ever talk like that? I mean, how stupid are you? You go there, they take the common Bible from you, and then they teach you a trade language that nobody in the Bible ever taught. But you got to use it so the world will go, ooh, he's really intelligent. Well, I've learned this a long time ago. When it comes to the Bible, it's never your intelligence. It's how stupid you are. The more dumber you are and stupid when you come to the Bible, the better off you're going to be. 
You see, but that's, that's just the way it is. But, I, you know, and it's a thing where this is modern-day Gnosticism. Everybody, and it's, it reminds me of that old song that, that uh, Dick Van Dyke, remember Dick Van Dyke? Yeah. They had a show one time when he came out in a cowboy uniform, outfit chaps with a big hat and, you know, those things like that. And, uh, and his, his, his wife came out, uh, what was her name? Uh, whatever it was. And, uh, she had a cowboy suit on. So they walk out to this crowd and they sing a song. They said to each other, I see by your outfit that you are a cowboy, she says. I see by your outfit that you're a cowboy too. Both of them. We see by our outfits that we are both cowboys. You get you a cowboy suit and you can be a cowboy too. That's what it is. You get the Greek and the Hebrew, you can be a Bible scholar too. You go to Bible college and learn our trade doc, you too can be a cowboy. See, that's how it works. That's exactly how it works. And it's a thing where, now, and let me be clear on this. When it comes to doctors and the lawyers and dentists and, and all that uh, and pharmacists, I, I want them to go to learn everything they can learn. I'm not talking about that. If you got a problem, you don't want Billy Bob with a fire hose trying to figure out what your problem is. You want the very best you can get. I get it. In the secular world, I understand why they do it. But it never should be with the Bible. Never should be in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 3, Paul said, I would to God you would bear with me a little of my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And the lessons of history is the devil beguiling God's people's minds getting them to believe that the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees as the first coming had the real truth, and Christ, the Word of God, was out as the second coming. The Bible scholars have the real truth, and the King James Bible is out, destroying, taking from you the simplicity. Now, <clears throat> the law first mentioned, we've talked about it many, many times, so i got to throw this into you in Acts chapter 19, verse 9. You have recorded for you in the book of Acts, and we all know how important the book of Acts is, the first Bible college in the Bible. And the first Bible college you're going to find in the Word of God is Acts chapter, in fact, that's the only one, is Acts chapter 19, verse 9. And in that one, they're teaching against the Word of God. Amen. Back in 1532, we talked about William Tyndale the other night on Thursday night and that great question. And he, he did the first, or did the second English translation. <clears throat> and he was in England and he was talking to all these scholars and he was looking out the window and he was getting ready to put out his English translation, which they were against. And he saw this plowboy across the road there plowing a field. And he turned to these guys and he said, Gentlemen, someday that plowboy will know, better, know the scriptures better than all the scholars in England. That was a sound piece of advice. So we have seen now how the devil through the 20th century has used neo-evangelicalism, a reconstruction of theology, neo-orthodoxy, back to the world system, and then a charismatic movement, all based on emotion and feeling. All three of these are driven by higher education that puts them over you, but all part of the mystery of iniquity. All three are completely different in their theology and their format, but all three have one thing in common. They all have no absolute final authority. 
And just like the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees of the first coming with the incarnate word, uh, they're, against the, they're against the written word that is with Christ. And some things never change. But it's these the lessons of history. This is why we are where we are. And you have to see how it didn't change from where it was there. Now, all down through history, God has had his faithful remnant. And I said, I, I'm an investigator of history. I, I never take anything at face value. When I see something, I want to know why. I grew up in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s when I actually began to see Bible-based Christianity turn away from the Word of God. And I looked at those things and I asked why. And I looked deep to find out why. And so down through the 20th century, you're going to find that God has his faithful remnant. And God used many people to help hold that line. But in reality, God used two key men to keep the lights on for you and for me. And I would be so bold to say that if you are a Bible believer today and you have a King James Bible that you hold dear to you as the Word of God, the only reason you have it is because God used these two men. You know, people have a tough time with that sometimes, but then when you put it on a broader sense, that's what God's all done down through history. Why the whole, he used Paul to change the whole world from the Gentile to the Jews to the Gentiles. In church history, he used John Antioch, the golden mouth. He used Savonarola against the Catholic Church. He used John Haas to take the whole nation of Czechoslovakia and turn them to Christ. He used Martin Luther to turn the whole world, Germany, uh, away from the Catholic Church. He used John Knox to do the same thing when Bloody Mary was on the throne in England. He used Wycliffe to do it with his translation. He used Tyndale to do it. He used Jonathan Edwards to do it when this country was formed and, and the devil tried to bring it back. He used Jonathan Edwards. He used George Whitfield, And then, of course, in our own 20th century, he used guys like Billy Sunday, a single man that God would use and raise up to keep the lights on for the rest of us. I can't tell you how hard that must have been. We see it with Paul. We see it in our own world with a guy like Billy Sunday. He was hated, but yet he was loved. When he died, his body lay in state in Madison Square Garden. A New York Times reporter recorded the events, and for two days, people filed by his casket, over a million people. And the reporter said, almost everybody said to themselves or the person they were with, I'd be in hell if it wasn't for that guy. He saved my marriage. He saved my family. He got me off alcohol. If it wasn't for that man's preaching, I'd be in a lake of fire. At the same time, the educated world hated him. Hollywood hated him. You watch a movie sometime uh, uh, and uh, you'll find that Sinclair Lewis hated him with a passion. He made a movie about him, uh, Elmer Gantry. And Elmer Gantry was a movie that was made specifically to pull Billy Sunday and his ministry as a, as a, as a phony. Now, you've got to hate a guy in what he preaches to do a whole movie about him. You've got to watch it sometime. And he was hated, but he was loved. 
And God used him to bring about an evangelism and a great awakening in this country, but needed. But he, he's, he's not the two guys. And in the 20th century, he raised up two key men. The first guy, and you've heard me talk about him before, is J. Frank Norris. He lived from 1877 to 1952. He's a man that God raised up. You know what he did in the early part of the 1900s when the neo-evangelical movement was coming in? Back then, the Baptists were only in three flavors. You had the Southern Baptist Convention, which was the largest. You had the GRB, and then you had the American Baptists. You didn't have any fundamental Baptists like you have today. And the Southern Baptist Convention was the biggest organization of Baptists in the world. And by 1920, they had went in complete apostasy. They bought into the neo-evangelical movement. Their big school down in Louisville was teaching evolution. It taught that the Bible, that Christ didn't come out of the tomb. It taught that Noah's flood was a fable. They taught that Adam and Eve was a fable. And they turned out generation after generation after generations of men and pastors who pastor churches even today and they're handing it down that believe nothing about the Bible. J. Frank Norris was God's atomic power sledgehammer to break the back on the Southern Baptist Convention. He's from Alabama. And uh, he got later be known as the Texas Tornado. And boy, I'll tell you what, he was the fair-haired boy of the Southern Baptist until he got into the organization and saw the corruption. And he preached about it. He was the most powerful preacher in the early part of the 20th century. And he ripped them apart. He took the whole Southern Baptist Convention on and, 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 and fought them and took it from them and gave it back to them. He was fearless, and they hated him. And he left the, Baptist, the Southern Baptist Convention around 1930, 40 somewhere, and he started what we know today, what we would call today, fundamentalism. Every Baptist church from 1950 on came from J. Frank Norris. I'm from the Canton Baptist Temple in Canton, Ohio. My pastor's name was Harold Henniger. He was one of Norris's boys. Used to have the Kansas City Baptist Temple here in Kansas City. Its pastor was Wendell Zimmerman originally. He was one of J. Frank Norris's boys. All across this country, when they left the Southern Baptist, J. Frank brought all these young men that wanted to believe in the Bible with him. And he started his own Bible school. <clears throat> it was in Texas, Fort Worth. <clears throat> and up on the sign of that big building of that local church was the sign in big letters, the only school in America teaching the King James 1611 as the infallible Word of God. He was hated. Yeah, I'll tell you what, he was a, he was a character. I'm not going to stand up and say that he was a saint and he was perfect. But boy, I'll tell you what, he got the job done. He was, he, a guy one time called him up on the phone and said, I'm coming down to your office to kill you. He said, well, I'll be here to 4 o'clock, try to get here by then. Guy comes into his office, pulled a gun, he outdraws him and shoots him right in his own office. From that point on, they called him the pistol-packing preacher. And uh, he was something else. It was incredible. One time they had a, <clears throat> they had a guys that were going to hang him. And they were downtown with a big around pickup truck, and there was a hundred guys down there. They were going to come down and get him and hang him. Somebody said, "You better get out of town, Jay Frank. They're coming down here to hang you." You know what he did? He went right down and got on the back of that truck and preached to them, and twenty guys got saved. Here's something else. He broke the back 
of the Southern Baptist Convention that kicked those men free to build Baptist churches that would hold the line with the Word of God that you would have the Bible today. Then God raised up the second man, gave him his word. We all know him as Dr. Peter S. Rockman, 1921 to 2016. Affectionately called God's junkyard dog. Now the difference between the ministries of these two men is very important to see and understand. As you put this in a context. Norris took on the number one Baptist Institute of America uh, that had been complete capacity and he broke their back. And he split from them. Then Baptist churches began to form. Ruckman come on the scene and he took the whole realm of scholarship who by 1950 had begun to take the Bible from you. And he took them on in mass. And he preached as an evangelist for years in all these churches of Norris's guys. And he was not a Norris guy, but he got saved after that. But he, he believed the King James Bible. And I actually saw it happen. I got right with God in the early 70s, and I watched all of J. Frank Norris's church begin to bend towards scholarship. Everybody wanted to be a doctor. Everybody wanted to have a degree. And the Bible colleges were passing out honorary degrees if you'll send their kids to them. And they all fell for it. Ruckman held the line. He went into these churches. He preached the King James Bible. I heard him. First time I heard him, I, 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 I couldn't believe it. Meredith Poole was here someplace. Where are you, Meredith? She's where? Okay. Her daddy was saved through, uh, through Gary was saved through Pete's preaching. And uh, he, he impacted the whole country, if not the world. And he, he took them on. And he's, he's always been, in my mind, he's been God's joke on scholarship. He was a common man, he, and God gave him the education of three earned PhDs from Bob Jones University. He had a photographic memory. He had a mind to absorb everything he read, and he read a book a day almost all of his life. He had an unparalleled ability with the Greek and the Hebrew for, 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 for one reason. God raised him up for one reason, and that is to throw him in the face of education and neo-evangelicalism and scholarship to hold the line and to take for us the stand that we had a perfect Bible, that you and I have it today. Truly, without any states of imagination, he was God's junkyard dog. Where J. Frank Norris, he was... He had two churches. He had a church. He was so powerful and had so many people. He had a church in uh, Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, and then a church up in, in uh, Detroit, Michigan. And, you know, he would preach at one and get on a plane and fly down and preach at the other one on, on Sunday night. And he had a following. It was unbelievable. And when it all fell apart, when he, after, right before he died, it, it, all, it all fell apart. And, and all those guys that he raised started churches. Uh, 20 or 30 years ago, I can't remember it was, I was actually offered a position at the Detroit church 
because they were a King James church and the pastor that had taken it wasn't a King James guy and he knew that if he took me up there and put me in there, they offered me a Sunday school of 2,000 people and, uh, you know, that, that wanted the King James Bible and he was looking into me to keep them under control but yet give them what they wanted. I didn't, I, I saw that thing coming a long way. I wanted no part of it. But that church was, was one of Norris's church. You know where it's at today? It doesn't even exist anymore. Gone. The one down in Dallas, Fort Worth, gone. And then God raised up Rockman. And uh, our roots in this church, our roots in this church go through that true line of men, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, who are committed to passing truth on to faithful men. It started in Norris. He passed it on to Ruckman. Ruckman got it. He gave it to my father, the Lord, Mel Sabaka. Mel Sabaka got it. He gave it to me as his son of the Lord, and I give it to you as my son of the Lord. That's how it went, me and you. And you're not going to give it to people that you work with, and it just keeps on going and going and going. Ruckman died in 2016. And to me, knowing the context of the 20th century as it runs back to John chapter 7, That was just another sign that it's over because there's nobody left now to take their places. There's no giant out there who is going to take on what they took on. God accomplished with what he wanted to accomplish with those two men's lives, and now it's simply up to churches who still believe the Bible, pastors who believe it, but there'll be no more Peter S. Rockman, and no more, there'll be no more uh, Norris's. And it's a thing now where doing the work that God has called churches to do and holding that line with the truth that you have and just waiting for our translation out of this place. It's over. And God's not going to send another J. Frank Norris or Peter S. Ruckman to lead us. He gave us, God gave us everything we need. The question was not, did they do a good job? The question is, what did we do with it? Where are we at with it? What do you know about it? And the average Baptist that claims to have the King James Bible, they wouldn't know who J. Frank Norris was or anything that's going on that I gave you this morning because they're oblivious to it. You know why? You don't dig deep enough. You're satisfied with the status quo. I never was. I want to know why I believe what I believe. I want to know. If I'm going to give my life for it, I want to know if it's worth giving it or not. And that's just the way it is. And all we do here is what we're supposed to do. Build people, build character, build leaders for one purpose, to carry on till the Lord comes back. It's just simply that, giving you the simplicity of Christ, protecting you from what's out there that wants to take that Bible from you. And as I said, we're at the end. We now must bear our cross as these guys bore theirs. We're now in a position as a church where we're in a nation that's divided. We're in a Christianity that's divided. We're in churches that are divided. And we've got to hold the line till he comes. We've got to do the work. We've got to get the word out to as many as we can in the time that we have left. And there's only one way we're going to do that, and that's to keep the book. It isn't about you or me. It isn't about this church. It comes down to the Bible that we believe. The fruit is not in you. The fruit is not in me. The fruit is not in this building. The fruit is in the greatest book the world has ever seen. And when we embrace the book, the book gives us the fruit. 
but it all goes back to the glory of God. If you're saved here this morning, you're saved for one reason, not because of me or the person that won you to Christ. We're just links in a long chain that goes back to church at Antioch. We're just an unbroken line of truth. It's not because of me. It's not because of you. It's not because some message I preach. It's because God gave all of us a book that's Amen. worth preaching. And we don't have it. We don't got nothing. So instead of setting you down and winning you to Christ and calling it sodiontology, we'll just talk about Jesus dying on the cross, shedding his blood that your soul could get cleansed from its sin. This church is the base of operation to allow God to bring people to us, that we may give them the truth. Our church is about to enter into a whole new operational level. It's no accident that all that's unfolding around us with our church, which you know clearly well, and the leadership that God has brought and the young men and the young ladies, is that's what it's going to take. It's going to take young men and young ladies with steel in their backbone and the NCOs of this church who have been around for a while to help everybody do what God wants us to do. And it's going to require everybody here to step up to another level to do what you have to do. And maybe it, none of it will be the same. Things are going to have to be done to bring this thing up and maintain it on that level. Because I don't know if you got, can see it or not, just in the last, what, month? Look how many people have come in and got saved, moved across this country, come here because they want the truth. Well, what do you think is going to happen when God raises us up three or four more levels? They're only coming out the woodwork. But well, we got to be ready for it. We got to be able to stand up and take and do what God calls us to do. I don't know how long we got. I don't really care. I just know what we got to do until we're out of here. And our church is about to enter into a whole new operational level. And the key will be getting the men and the women that God sends us, the moms and the dads, and getting them up to an operational level as quickly as we can. I know it won't work for everybody. I know there'll be ones that will bail out and won't care. I don't care about that. I want the ones that are going to do what needs to be done and we'll take it from there. And watch what God does. Look what he's already doing with what we've done. And we've only just nicked the surface. Wait till we get up to this level that's coming our way where we have the ability and everything that we need to accomplish everything on that level. We're already going around the world I get people from Belfast, Ireland, from Africa to Mexico to Guatemala to Holland to France. To, I mean, they're all over the place. And it's all because of the book that God gave us and are willing to pay the price to put it out. And that's what it's going to take. And that's why our great, 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 great grandfather, J. Frank Norris, would be proud to see that this little church is learn the lessons of history and to carry it on and that the price that he paid, and I can't even tell you. I, I could take time today to tell you the unbelievable, unbelievable price that they paid for you to have your Bible. I mean, Ruckman was hated by Bible colleges so much, I heard him in the Tawana Mel Sabaka. We was crying one day at camp, one night when they were talking how that he had just finished a revival down someplace in South Carolina and a Bible college down there that hated his guts. 
you know, in a hotel room by himself uh, trying to preach, sent call girls over to his room to try to get him to fall. Christian organizations. Bob Jones University, if you want to know who it was, all because they hated a man. Why did they hate him? Because he believed the book and he paid the price. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what he paid. Now the question is, you got it pretty free, didn't you, huh? Amen. You got it pretty good. I mean, I gave it to you. It didn't cost you much. Didn't, you didn't have to put now. now. Now the real question is, based on you understanding the context of the 20th century, what happened back then, where we're at now, from John 7 to today, and what we're faced with at the second coming, like Christ was faced with at the first coming, now the question becomes academic. What price are you willing to pay? Because that's the only real, that's the only real question. And you're the only one that can really give the answer. So, you have a context now. And I didn't want to just move into chapter 8 without taking all the information that I put out there. Now you know. It's on the record. And it's a thing where now you know why, who we are and why we are. So you now we can be proud of that or you can say, I don't want to be part of this and there's the door back there. It doesn't matter to me. Bottom line is if you all leave, I'm staying and doing the job. Because that's the bottom line that God called us to do. So we'll hold up there. Now, as soon as we are done, and I mean like right now, 